Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. 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 Yay! Yeah. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. And now you're at Dallas, right? Dallas Seminary. Yes. I saw you're the, uh, let's see, department chair and professor of theological studies, right? Correct. Correct. And in our department, we do historical theology, systematic theology, philosophy, and apologetics. So that's kind of all under the umbrella of that department. That's all. That's it. That's it. (laughs) So you can imagine I've got, we have six required theology courses, a couple required uh, historical theology courses, and then a slew of electives that are coming up constantly on a cycle. Mm. And so you can imagine as I'm sitting down to do scheduling from scratch, uh, it's not fun. It's the least yeah. favorite part of my job. Let me just put it that way. Wow. Okay. How long have you been at Dallas? Um, teaching there since 07. And okay. I've been the department chair for since, well, for 10 years now, roughly 10 years. So since 2013, I think. Okay. And you're also an alum, right? A DTS alum? I, I am. Yep. Uh, graduated from Philadelphia College of Bible at the time, South Cairn University in Philadelphia area. And then came down to Dallas for seminary. I'm from Minnesota originally, never intended to stay in Dallas. <laughs> Still don't intend to stay in Dallas, but here I am. And, uh, you know, 96 and never really left. Wow. Okay. So you, you graduated then DTS what year? So I graduated with my THM in New Testament in 2001. Okay. And then then rolled into the, the PhD program, but switched into theological studies and focused on patristics. So that was uh, graduated from that in 07. So you were then kind of after, I guess, the what some people would call the uh, golden age of professors at DTS with all the big name guys who are writing so many books, so many popular books uh, yeah, at Dallas. Yeah. You were maybe after a lot of those guys had retired, I guess. Ryrie and Walbert are the ones I'm thinking of along with sure. Pentecost and others. Yeah, I, I knew all of them um, and they were still floating around, you know, and coming in and teaching uh, occasional classes, etc. So they were around, um, but not anymore. Yeah, I had actually Ryrie at, for... Uh, theology at Bible College in at uh, ECB, but um, and then had known him here in Dallas. This is where he lived, but not as a professor here. Okay, gotcha. Well, how how have you seen Dallas change in the last twenty years? You've been been around for over two decades now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what have you seen change uh, there? Because I the, the pastor that um, 
of the church where I got saved in Missouri. He was a DTS grad, I think 1978. And, um, the professors, pretty much all the professors, at least all the good ones I had at Bible college, (laughs) I shouldn't say that, but I know a lot of them went to Dallas. And so I'm like a, a grandchild of Dallas seminary in some of those ways, you know, and I right. uh, can study, the, I guess I could call it church history now of what Dallas was like, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and uh, can can hear about it that way. But then I'm kind of wondering where it's at today or how it's changed since mm-hmm. then. And so since you've been there for quite some time and are familiar with its history, I'm curious how you yeah. would articulate all of that. Yeah, I mean, as far as doctrinally and our tradition there has not really changed much um how we do things i mean the we were at the forefront of getting into uh um, external studies online those kinds of things and really focusing on doing that with with great quality so um, that's the biggest change Uh, almost every one of our students comes through having taken either hybrid or online or some Mm -hmm. sort of extension courses we have multiple campuses around Mm -hmm. the country now so that's the biggest change Um, students um you know you used to and i'm not disparaging students here i'm just saying you used to be able to count on um, pretty firm biblical literacy coming in they're coming from bible colleges or they were coming from churches that were really strong Mm -hmm. and you know about 10 15 years ago we had to kind of rethink our theology classes and uh kind of revamp them in a sense to, to to make them a little bit more catechetical and kind mm, of yeah. back up and teach some of the more basics. And that's not a slight against the students. It is a, a mild critique against even what they're getting in Bible colleges and, uh, and mm. churches for sure, as far as biblical and theological literacy has noticeably changed. But we're also getting a lot of students that are new believers coming out of secular colleges that we used to not get as many. And so that's a big factor as well. What's Dallas Seminary's place going to be going forward in the future, 20, 30 years from now? Uh, what's going to yeah. be the role that Dallas Seminary plays? Yeah, I mean, we are we started out as an interdenominational seminary uh, run by Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Anglicans. Uh, we kind of, over, over the next 50 years or so, kind of veered more into the non-denominational seminary mm-hmm. territory, even though that's not what we're founded as. So we, we're kind of known as the non-denominational seminary, you know, but yeah. I think we've lately uh, embraced that without getting letting go of that, have also embraced the fact that we have students from, you name it, every single Protestant denomination is represented at DTS. Um, so what our doctrinal statement says, we have the seven core, which are just the basic fundamentals of the Orthodox Protestant evangelical faith, which broadens the student body quite significantly, which is both a challenge in the classroom, but it's also really great because you're you're not going to get students just parroting back what they're getting from the professors. There's a lot of back and forth, and I, I love that dynamic. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I always... Um like to see the shock on people's faces when, because a lot of people don't know this, that uh, dispensationalism as a a movement that was really getting traction, really got traction in Presbyterian circles, as you mentioned. Presbyterian uh, (laughs) congregational. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Because people think Dallas seminary dispensationalism, right? They, they maybe jump to Hal Lindsey, like great planet earth kind of stuff. And, um, but to find out that Lewis Berry Schaefer was sprinkling babies. It's like, whoa, um, <laughs> didn't see yeah. that coming. But plot twist. 
Yeah, that's <laughs> and that's actually shocking to a lot of people in in class at at seminary. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, one of the ma- one of my major areas is ecclesiology, and when I when I let the class know that DTS does not take a position on credo or pedo baptism, it, it they leave like literally. I have the freedom to hold either one, uh, perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. We tend to be credo baptists, but not all, and that's sort of surprising to some of especially the baptist students who think that well dts is just baptist light or you know stealth baptist but in fact we're we're really not that's not really our original heritage though you know we have a definitely large showing yeah yeah that's interesting i mean those are just two worlds that today don't mix the (laughs) non-denominational dispensational kind of world and then the reformed presbyterian world but that's how it all launched back in the 20s uh, so. that's right that's right and you know and uh has he has no direct relationship to dts itself but um uh, john nelson darby sort of the father of dispensationalism was a was an anglican priest irish uh, anglican mm-hmm. priest who never forsook infant baptism mm-hmm. and he was uh you know there'd be he, he would have been a seven point calvinist if there was two more points i mean he was way into that so it just kind of blows up blows up people's categories and today we've kind of have these nice neat sim- oversimplified uh categories that just don't match even current reality so there's a lot of yes. myths yeah there was a paper written um i don't know how many years ago but i believe it was by tommy ice for liberty and uh it was about dispensationalism's calvinistic heritage and yeah. uh yeah that's another thing that i mean people just don't think about a lot of times for whatever reason dispensationalism gets tied to uh, arminianism or just non-calvinism uh macarthur hasn't been able to change the narrative on that through the years (laughs) yeah you know i i like to say that you know dispensationalism as a movement began as anti-denominational in the brethren tradition and then when it crossed the sea to america it was an interdenominational phenomenon it really did unite a lot of different denominations but mostly in that kind of confessional reform tradition and then the next phase it become non became non-denominational mm-hmm. but you're going to find um people of all denominations that historically who have held forms of it anyway yeah mm-hmm. Well, hey, I uh, just finished going through the AI Theist this morning, just uh, minutes you before did. I jumped on here. Yeah, you you wrote a novella. I I did, yes. Was that a, a new venture for you? Was that the first time writing fiction, or um, uh, at least in that long form published format? Um, no, actually, I've uh, my very first thing I ever published was a was the first edition of something called Air of the Forgotten Realm, which was a Christian juvenile mm. fantasy thing. The publisher that published that went out of business and I got the rights back. So I revised it and, and released a sequel to it. So I've done a couple of things in that. I do have a, a long, a full length sci-fi novel called Topia mm. and a sequel on the way called Elegy. And that, uh, so I self, I have an agent that handles all my nonfiction theology stuff. I self-publish my fiction so I can have control over it. Um, although the Topia is being translated by a, a traditional publisher into Portuguese. <laughs> so wow. I guess for the Brazilian market, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know a lick of Portuguese. So I have, I can't, you know, testify as to the quality of the translation, but does that, that does mean I have to finish up the sequel to it. So I should be finishing that up this December, but the AI theist is the first thing that I've done. That's a novella length, um, fairly short, 
yeah uh yeah it's it's fun i actually started out even my earlier pre-christian days um area of study was uh creative writing i actually had a course on science fiction and such those people i always ask how does a theologian break into or or start working on sci-fi fiction and i said it was actually the other way around (laughs) i started out of that realm and kind of moved into theology wow well um yeah it was a very interesting read and uh i don't know how much you want to reveal about the details of the book so i'll i'll you know put the ball in your court i I think i saw you tweet something um relatively recently that you think that this book the ai theist is maybe one of the most important things you've ever written something to that effect um yeah so comment on that give a synopsis of the book however much you want to share and i'd love to sure i don't know pick your brain about it a little bit yeah that's great yeah i i think i said it's the it may be the best thing i've written um okay in in the sense of i think uh it, i feel like having looked at it again some things you know you're right and you think oh <laughs> it'll do it's just gonna have to be sufficient um this thing i i thought that it was a very tight narrative the novella size uh helped me to kind of keep to the point and have a nice little tight arc. Uh, the characters, I actually enjoy them. They, the, uh, it's pretty straightforward. But I, what I really like is, what I like to do with my fiction is, I just call it the, theology-infused fiction. Uh, and I think this has a lot of theology, a lot of apologetics, but uh, also the dynamic um, between faith and reason uh, what is reasonable doubt? What is unreasonable doubt? And all, a lot of the, this gray space that people live in, uh, it, it, I think it treats it, I try to treat it honestly. So the premise is, uh, it's kind of on the cover, the uh, where it says, uh, when a sentient AI system finds religion, its creator calls on a theologian turned atheist to cure it of its faith. So I fo- found that dynamic really fun to write. So the the believer in the dialogue is a computer, and you think Hal nine thousand, you know, from two thousand one, but with maybe a little bit more emotion. And then the unbeliever, the doubter, uh, is the former theologian who'd been teaching theology for twenty years and and gave up his faith for various reasons. So uh, that dialogue was, I think, it was fun to highlight. Uh, what does motivate faith? What motivates doubt? What motivates unbelief? And how can we navigate that space in a way that is uh, faithful to facts, but also realize that more than just facts are part of our our faith makeup? And uh, that dynamic was fun. What did you uh, What did you think of of that kind of aspect of it? I mean, that's pretty obvious. I hope it wasn't heavy handed, <laughs> but mm-hmm. some of it was a little bit heavy handed. Yeah, I, I really um, was surprised by how much of it was essentially apologetics. I, I don't think I was prepared for that. I should have been. I mean, just to, you know, you could think about how that dynamic's going to go uh, in that conversation between the two main characters there. But uh, but that was a really interesting aspect of it was basically being immersed in apologetics for a good chunk of the book. Maybe the, yeah, the, you'd say the latter half of the book was um all apologetics or a little more than that so uh you know i found that to be really interesting and i also found myself wondering how plausible 
is this scenario in the future? I mean, is how how fictitious is this scenario? Do you, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know yeah. you you got thoughts on this, right? I mean, you thought up this scenario. Yeah. Is this like something that is sci-fi, or is this something that's actually coming? Do you think that's what I yeah. found myself grappling with through the book? Yeah, is it prophecy or is it <laughs> fiction, <laughs> correct? You know? Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, that's a good question. I do, you know, of course, many of us have seen how AI systems today. You ask it to uh, make jokes about Jesus, and it makes all kinds of jokes about Jesus. But you ask it to make jokes about Muhammad, and it won't, and it holds its tongue. Mm. So that tells us that somebody's in the background controlling to some degree what it's allowing the AI to do. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, the scenario where this Yar is the name of the system in the in the book, whether a creator of this system is going to get grant that kind of intellectual liberty to a an AI system, even if it were possible. Um, although, you know, in the book, even you may recall, there was a couple of lines in there where it said, yeah, he, this this AI system, Yar, came up with ways to solve the problem of homelessness or hunger, whatever these social ills are. And they joke that half of the solutions make them a Nazi, the other one make them a, a whatever, a communist or something like this. So yeah, it was well, half uh, of them were Marxists uh, and half of them were Marxists, uh, the other one were Nazis. You Nazi. Know? And, th and then yeah. there was one that was a uh, one solution that had a 79% chance of uh, upheaval yeah. by the society I'll with, with firearms. Uh -huh. And so, uh, so, so there's a the certain degree where, where they do kind of keep the raw, you know, yar from the public. Um, but that's why you have this this phenomenon of the chamber where they enter into and they're able to interact with this system with no filter. So, uh, so I think that maybe you know it's a great question. Um, it, is it possible to simply rationally, reasonably using abduction to land on the truthfulness of the Christian mm -hmm. faith? It's kind of something that's thrown out there as possibility that's going on although by the time you get to the end you realize it's a little more complicated than that well maybe tied into my last question this question crossed my mind too the uh one of the initial characters uh that we meet is the indian man who's a ceo of the tech company that developed yeah. this ai and i'm wondering how much he was based on elon musk uh obviously elon musk is not indian but i wondered how much yeah. elon musk was in your mind <laughs> <laughs> when you were developing that character yeah i i kind of created him as a sort of a conglomerate sort of a patchwork character of the just a typical um i would just say tech guy you know mm. so he's you know i grew up in the 80s and, and 90s and so you had steve jobs and you had you know george lucas and spielberg making their movies and you had all of these these people who were doing these these new things you know um bill gates and uh elon musk you throw him in there so he's he's sort of like a composite character of all of these things um and you know he he comes from india but then he spent some time in france and then some time in germany before he got to america it's it's funny i'm just reviewing the final version of the audio uh book it'll be out in audible probably in a week or two and the uh producer um brian schultz who who did the the voices and things he uh he had a hard time but i think he did a pretty good job of creating the indian with the french and german accent mixed in there uh, <laughs> and, I and with a name like brian schultz i'm assuming he's not native <laughs> to any of those countries so <laughs> exactly so uh yeah so it was it was 
fun. Yeah, I would say he's just more of a composite character, but uh, also, you know, uh, kind of came alive for me as well. This guy who's more the agnostic and doesn't really care. You know, I don't. You know, at one point he has this line. That he says, "You know, honestly, I care. I believe in religious liberty for humans and for AI. I just don't want them to mess up. Mm-hmm. You know, my bottom line. Essentially, that's his biggest concern." Well, it was an interesting take on where AI could go. Uh, yeah. I mean, an interesting thought. I mean, and it's a uh, an original or novel thought too on where AI could go because so much of the conversation around AI today is how much evil is going to be <laughs> let loose right. through yeah. AI, um, but also to a degree, how helpful could AI be? Um, was it Christianity Today recently put out an article about AI? Uh, in sermon preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- was this maybe your way of leaning into the optimism of where AI could go? Yeah. You know, if you think about AI just for the last 30 years as intelligent, 30, 40 years as intelligent computers have been thought about. So you go all the way back to the, the 60s with uh, 2001 and HAL 9000, who basically loses his mind and, you know, tries to kill people. (laughs) You have Mother and Alien. You have uh, the Terminator. You have all of these Skynet, you know, even that he, you know, Skynet appears several times in the, in the AI theist, you know, they, you know, is it going to go Skynet on us? So um, it seems like the computer system, the intelligent or quasi matrix, right? The quasi intelligent computer system is always the bad guy. It's the Frankenstein theme. You know, we create this thing and it turns on us and tries to kill us. And I yeah. and I just thought, you know, that's worn out. That's cliche. You very rarely have a benevolent um, computer system that is intelligent. And the ones you do are boring, like the onboard computer in Star Trek. You know, <laughs> I mean, you don't want to have a conversation with that. So it, it, the closest I think you get is like data from Star Trek The Next Generation, where you have this intelligent, sentient computer robot android that is basically harmless. Um, and I, th- I kind of modeled it a little bit after that. But yeah, it's it's a different twist. Well, there was quite a bit of conversation in the book about whether the AI that that is created there is sentient. And right. uh, that is an interesting thought. I mean, I, this was several months ago now that I read about, I don't know if it was Google's AI or whose AI it was, but the AI was asked a question in Burmese and mm-hmm. the AI answered the question in Burmese. The wild part of that was that the AI was not programmed to know Burmese. It, right. it had basically taught itself a language uh, whether that was done previously or instantaneously, however that all works, it answered a question in a language it was not programmed to speak in. That yeah. is super creepy to me. <laughs> yeah. That, that That's right. really, really creepy. Yeah. Uh, is it though? I, or is yeah, it cool? It is. <laughs> I mean, this is it. That's the question. Creepy if this cool? wasn't if this cool. wasn't a fallen world, it would be cool. But I mean, the <laughs> fact that we live in a in a cursed planet filled with evils, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's like, well, yeah, where's this going to go? Yeah, you know, and that, there's an interesting in, exchange in the book where um, Mike Bird Berg, the the human who lost his faith in in Yar, the the computer, 
he's asking, why don't you just kill us all? Eventually, somebody's going to shut you down. What prevents you from killing us all? And he gives three reasons. The one is, you know, he has no access to weapons of mass destruction directly. Second, the Asimovian um, laws of robotics, modified version, run, run kind of runs in the background. But then he says, um, God would not like that. You know, his, in other words, his faith, his uh, conclusion that God is real and Christianity is true itself is pro providing this check on on the the sentient computer's behavior and then he turns the table on to the atheist and says i i think really rationally i should be more afraid of you than you should be afraid of me what's keeping you from you know committing all kinds of evil and he really can't answer the question so it is a uh, like i said at moments it's heavy-handed <laughs> <laughs> well you just used the word faith, and now that does yeah. bring up the question, something that I was thinking about through the book. Can artificial intelligence have authentic faith? What yeah, do you think? It, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. In the book itself, you know, the question is, it doesn't seem to add up. Why did he start having being obsessed over religious things? Why now? And how did he come to these conclusions? At one point, I make up the scenario where he, he accepts the authority of Scripture, even though rationally this little section here might you know all things being equal it looks like it's an error mm. um i may, totally made that up but uh i wanted something to show that he's actually in spite of problems epistemologically you know he's rounding it up to it's true and and the image that that they use is you know he's got his thumb on the scale for some reason toward faith so there is this faith but it's in the computer's mind it's more of a Everything else being equal, this doesn't fit, but I'm gonna I'm gonna round it up and and just sort of gloss over it. And that's what that's the computer version of yeah. faith, I guess. Um, yes, it was like a, a, a statistical plausibility. I, I, right. one one part in right. the book, I mean it was like, okay, if you look at just this one instance in a vacuum, yeah, the scales tip the other way. Right. But the God of the Bible and the Bible's uh, explanation of the world overall gives the best explanation yeah it was more of a statistical yeah scales go this way yeah and it, it is is that what we mean by faith not really but um i'm i i wrestled with that long and hard what was what does faith look like for a <laughs> an intelligent computer and then in the end i do not want to give it away but in the end you realize there's way way more going on than just let's round this up to yeah 100 percent. you know there's a lot more going on which is a little more shocking and i'm not sure how realistic that is well yeah i mean it's basically asking the question what does faith look like in a being not made in the image of god and yeah, not directly right. created by god even um yeah so yeah i, I mean it's very <laughs> it's very complex but we're live. it's a world we're living in too and in, in that it's it's going to con it's going to stay i mean i don't think there's a scenario where AI disappears now uh, right. in our world, we have now advanced artificial intelligence that will be here to stay. And I imagine we're going to encounter some level of similarity <laughs> with what you present in sure. the book. And we'll have to, we'll have to figure this out, not just individually or theoretically, but in real world scenarios in our churches and our schools and mm -hmm. wherever else we may be. Um, I'm curious just as a final thought on, on this work of yours, sure. what, what you want the reader to walk away with, because there, 
there are several things that you can walk away with. Again, apologetics are a lot of apologetics in yeah. there and someone could yeah. read it just as an apologetics book if they wanted mm-hmm. to. Um, however, there's, there's obviously more going on. So curious from the author's perspective, what, what is your desire for the reader? Yeah. My desire is that they think and talk, preferably talk about these kinds of things that pop up. I feel like every chapter presents a few things that a, you know, a book club or a discussion group or something could, could talk through related to faith and doubt and what is reasonable faith and what is reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. Some of those things, uh, the, looking at the things that motivate our, our beliefs and our unbelief, and especially in an age where I feel, uh, you know, toward the end, you realize, or the, the main character, Mike, Mike Berg, who is the former professor, became an atheist. He he does begin to wonder whether he was he's thrown the baby out with the bathwater, or you know, deconstructed you know way too quickly and uh, and carelessly, and, and kind of coming back to okay, maybe I need to rethink this a little better. Um, so I think that those kinds of things, I feel like I feel like every one of us lives in this tension between the the just unmitigated rationality of Yar and the the passion and the disappointment and the pain and the the reality of real life that Mike Berg represents and then navigating that space. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's just not something we talk about enough. Um, we still in the 21st century like to downplay, minimize, or even hush uh, legitimate sources of doubt and questions. And I think that that's something that a space that we need to explore more. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. The book definitely does lead the reader in that direction. And so, um, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It's a very easy read. I love how short the chapters are. You feel like you're making progress. So uh, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Uh, another work of yours. So shifting gears completely. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, what similarities? What but kind of is segue? Really, yeah. Is well, it really shifting completely? Okay. Well, yeah, we're, we're going, <laughs> we're shifting to talk about the shepherd of Hermas. Yeah. Uh, you tell me how to make a segue here. Um, Christian fiction. <laughs> okay. Words of Christian fiction. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I flipped through the shepherd of Hermas once. Right. So sh- showing my hand. That's more than most people. And it is a trip. I mean, that thing is pretty wild. And so you yeah. are uh, essentially immersing yourself in it and the history surrounding it. And yeah. you're, you're you're doing a work on on this book. So how about you just give an explanation of what this book is and then what you're doing now in, in your work of analyzing it? So great. Yeah. So the, the Shepherd of Hermes, I'm going to kind of step back and just talk about, you know, church fathers. We, we have heard of that people from not that are not part of the New Testament from the first century to about the fifth or sixth century. Uh, we call that the Patricia period of the church fathers. And then you have this small group of writings called the apostolic fathers, which were about a dozen works that people thought were written by people or at a time by people who were actual associates of the apostles of the disciples. So that includes things like the Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp. And so Shepherd of Hermas um, is part of that collection of the earliest outside the canon of the New Testament um, uh, collection of writings. Uh, Some of those writings were thought by some people in some places for a short period of time to be, to warrant canonicity, to be, to be quoted from as scripture and shepherd of Hermas to the 
to the dismay of many people, was one of those that for a while was quoted by some people as scripture early on. Not by everybody, not for very long, but for a, a short period of time. So it was wildly popular. It is very long. It's the longest of the Apostolic Fathers, and it has three uh, major segments. The first uh, five visions, um, the first segment, and then you have a segment of mandates. There are 12 mandates, and they are like um, the catechesis, like a, uh, each basically a moral theme or a vice that you avoid. And then the similitudes are the parables. There are 10 of these parables that are kind of in between mandates and visions. They're, they're giving, uh, here's this tree, and here's what this tree represents, and it's drawing some moral principles from it. So it is, like you said, a trip. Uh, it's cast in the form of, yeah, it seems like there are these visions. He claims to be having these visions and they, these, this woman comes and it takes him on a tour of this and that, or this shepherd, that's what it's called, the shepherd of Hermes. The shepherd shows up for the rest of the book and shows him around and explains the parables and things to him. And uh, is he really claiming to have had these visions or is this just a device? You know, is this a genre decision or is it more like a staged kind of one man performance that's kind of the position we take that's it's supposed to be in some way maybe a dramatic uh performance kind of in the quasi category of christian satire with a punch hmm. uh so it's it's really nothing like it um before or after in the christian tradition until you get to maybe something like um pilgrim's progress or something like that but that's quite obviously an allegory so that's a long kind of explanation, but I think it kind of at least puts it in some context. And what, what's um, what's your work that you're doing on it? Is it going to be a book, yeah. like a yeah. an analysis so, of it? So the book is is out now. It's a it's a it just came out this last month. So it's a okay. translation, brand new translation. Here here's a copy of it. I don't know what the words will come oh, up backwards. I'm sorry, or forwards. I, I I didn't see that it had already released. Nope. My, my no, no, it's great. No, no problem. It's it's just fresh. I didn't think it was be would be out this soon to be honest. I hmm. thought it would, would be coming out in November, so we were on top of it. So just fresh. So you can grab it as an ebook or a uh, hard copy, but it's a new translation, and we try to um, it's co-authored, Caroline Bowie and I. Um, she did her dissertation in Shepherd of Hermas, and so I did the new translation from the Greek and then the latter chapter from Latin, and we, uh, I try to and this does, I guess, go back to our discussion of the AI because, you know, I, because I am a a writer training creative writing i was able to kind of put it in a a style that is uh, i think a little more readable and entertaining and catching some of this the, the i would say liveliness of the conversations that are going on in shepherd of Hermes. and um yeah so the translation itself fresh and then the commentary is written from a you know orthodox protestant evangelical perspective but engaging you know critical scholarship there as well all right, so uh, several questions about sure. the book, or uh, yeah, about the Shepherd of Hermas. Shepherd um, of Hermas, yeah. Who who does the author claim to be, or, or just I mean, like who who wrote it, and is there a claim to authorship within the yeah. book itself? Yeah, it's written from the first person by Hermas, and there's there are of course theories that different people kind of edited it or put whoops, you know, wove things together or whatever. Uh, although the Probably the, the consensus and the general idea is that, no, this was written by one person and self-edited over the course of about 
40, 50 years over the course of his lifetime. Hmm. Started somewhere in the 90s, most likely, and finished up around 140 or so uh, in Rome. And it's by this guy named Hermes. Uh, there is this writing called the Muratorian Canon. It's kind of a discussion yeah. of which books we accept and why um, written in the late second century. And they mention the Shepherd of Hermas as, yeah, it's good Christian literature. You can read it, but we don't teach from it authoritatively as scripture. And the reason why it says it was written more recently in our time, meaning second century, uh, and it mentions Hermas being the brother of the bishop of Rome of the earlier second century, around 140, uh, Bishop Pius of Rome. So that's possible. They seem to have had an inside scoop on who he was. Uh, but they say we we don't count it among the apostles because after their time we're among the prophets, uh, whose number is complete. So it's Christian literature. Endorse it, read it, kind of like we would read, you know, Christian fiction or whatever. But we don't quote from it as as uh, holy scripture. They would say. Yep. Uh, so that's about as close as we get to biographical information is what that's the Mertorian canon said. Except what's in the book itself. So he oh, okay. was married. He had yeah. some kids. He had been a, a manumitted slave at one point. Hmm. Um, had owned fields. Had been you know. So you can tell he's he has a prominent position in the uh, the community and was well known. And then, then if it is true that his bish, his brother was, you know, the bishop eventually became the bishop of Rome, you could tell what kind of a, a family he came in. So he would have been pretty highly, highly regarded. Um, but it's, it's weird. Mm-hmm. I don't want to downplay that either. You know, it's some, mm-hmm. some strange stuff going on in there. So the, if I remember right, the Muratorian canon was about 180, around the, in the 180s. Yeah, um, I think that's fair. Okay. And yep. probably the next solid list of books, um, as far as canon goes, I guess, uh, well, no, this would be before Athanasius was Eusebius in the 300s. Is that right? Yeah, he mentions, he kind of describes at least the state of the canon at the time. At the okay. time, yeah. And what did he have to say about the shepherd? Yeah, by that point, nobody's really, really quoting from it as scripture. Now, they're okay. going to be quoting from it and alluding to it like they do, hmm. um, but they're not quoting a, at it from it authoritatively. It had a it had a good run in Alexandria for a little while, um, in the second and third centuries, especially. Uh, and then Irenaeus does quote from, you know, Mandate 1, because it is a very, very, Mandate 1 is quoted from uh, very frequently in early Christian literature because it's a very clear affirmation of uh, creation ex nihilo. People are kind of surprised at how difficult it is to find a verse that clearly says in the New Testament that God created everything out of nothing. Yeah. That specific philosophical language where Shepherd of Hermas is very explicit. Um, Yeah. So that tends to be quoted from frequently. Yeah, that's interesting. My my favorite... uh verse on that that God created out of nothing is actually Revelation 4:11 where it makes a distinction between uh things being and things being created because so often the the word for yeah. created can just mean fashioned together out of pre-existing material exactly. so it, it, it right. could mean that but in Revelation 4:11 worthy are you our lord our god to receive praise and honor right. for all things exist by your will and were created. And so that distinction right. between exist and were created. So uh, that, that's really interesting. So mandate one then is a section within uh, Shepherd of Hermas. Is that what you were saying? 
Yeah. So mandate one, I'll, I'll just kind of read, might as well just read the line that yeah. is because it is so frequently quoted in early Christian literature. It says, first of all, believe that God is one who created and ordered all things. He made from what does not exist, everything that exists. And he contains all things while alone being uncontained. So you see this, you can see why, you know, and early Christians would just love to quote that thing, mm -hmm. you know, against, you know, atheism as well as polytheism. Uh, so that's why it was so popular. You said Irenaeus quoted it and yeah. did so as scripture. Is that? Uh, it's hard to tell. Irenaeus is a little bit, you know, the word scripture, <laughs> grafe, does just mean a writing, you know. And it so it's the same word for a a nice Christian writing we like. Yeah. But don't, you know, it, they don't really distinguish necessarily. Uh, um, now, if they say prophetic scripture or holy scripture or add a, a modifier that's usually talking about canonical scripture so there are studies written by about Irenaeus whether he uh, regarded this as holy scripture or as mm. just a good Christian writing from which to quote it's not a hundred percent clear so you mentioned that there were um, maybe a a few Christians earlier on who did see it as inspired authoritative holy scripture are there names off the top of your head uh, that yeah. people would know? Yeah, like the the Alexandrian school, origin of Alexandria, oh. for instance, would have regarded this huh. as or quoted from it seemingly from scripture. He yep. is the origin of many issues. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. All right. And but I guess that kind of makes sense because you know, origin was obviously into the deeper spiritual meaning of stuff, the allegorical type yeah. stuff. And the shepherd really takes you on those oh, yeah. visions of grandeur sure. and uh, it, there's a lot to be read between the lines probably in the shepherd. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah. And the principle the, of multiple layers of meaning, you know, they have at uh, one point um, uh, parable five, you know, has this literal interpretation. It's about fasting and says, here's yeah. another interpretation. Oh, and here's another interpretation of the parable, you know, so they're, they're stacking interpretation on interpretation. You can see where, you know, the Alexandria School especially would be really interested in this principle of uh, drawing up multiple interpretations, Christological, moral, as well as practical. So, yeah, it's it it's explicable why they would be attracted to this. Interesting. But but it is an explicitly Christian book, though, right? I, I want to make sure that we're clear on this point. Um, it, yeah. it affirms the gospel, I imagine. Yeah, this is now let me just say. Uh, if you're a five-point Calvinist evangelical, it's probably not going to be your cup of tea. <laughs> now, why it, do you uh, say that? You gotta well, you, you gotta give detail on that one. It so, and this is a, I guess, a problem. So I'm a prime. My my main scholastic area is scholarly area is patristic studies. So, uh, and I, on the other hand, confessionally, I'm a I'm a Calvinist. So. Uh, more of the Augustinian Calvinist tradition, I think they had better answers uh, to some of the soteriological questions. Um, but I have to also be honest with the facts. Uh, I could cherry pick the early church fathers and try to construct something that looks kind of like Calvinism. But the reality is, if you, I, I like to say, if you took the, you know, fathers of the first few centuries and you kind of ground them all up and made a sausage out of it, sort of averaged it all out, it would look more like something uh, like a, like an Arminian theology or somewhere in that realm. Uh, you know, the 
strong emphasis on sovereignty would cancel out sort of the average up the, the strong emphasis on free will. And Shepherd of Hermas really does kind of land in the, yeah, you're saved by grace, you're saved by Christ, you're saved by faith, and faith is the source of all of these virtues. But you also, this faith is supposed to, must be nurtured and you have to, um, you have to, it, 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 it reads very synergistically, which is not, not my view. I even, you know, I believe even sanctification itself is a gift of God and uh, God, God's grace through faith uh, sanctifies us as it does justifies us. So uh, Hermes would probably say, yeah, you're saved. You brought into this thing, but now you need to roll up your sleeves and get to work and, and build on this faith that you have through virtue, uh, which is a Christian view. It's even a Protestant view. It's out there, you know. Hermes would be better received probably by a um, by the holiness kind of tradition, I would say. That's hmm. it's an interesting perspective that you bring someone who spends a lot of time in the patristic, someone who spends a lot of time reading original sources of early church fathers and um, coming out with a view that tends to be more, uh, I don't know, transparent, I guess, about where, where they landed, because you'll hear sometimes people argue and it's almost like if they can find an early church father who shares their view, that's like the Trump card, you know? I mean, yeah, if if the, if the Bible articulates their view or whatever on Calvinism or whatever the case may be, that's great. But if I can find an early church father (laughs) who articulates it, then that proves that I'm legit. Right. Um, and, and so it's, it's pretty interesting, but sometimes you'll hear people say, especially if they're from the more Calvinistic camp that, well, at that time, they just weren't grappling with soteriological issues like they would, like Christians would 1500 years later, 1200 years later, whatever the case may be. Uh, Is that true? Do do you think that maybe you get that average of Arminianism across the board just because they weren't really diving into those issues until the Reformation? Yeah, I I would I think that that's fair. I, I will say, though, you know, when I'm in fact, this semester, I'm teaching an elective. One of my main electives is on the apostolic fathers themselves. And uh, I would say when you if you read first Clement uh, written in the 90s, um, I can read that as a Calvinist with almost no qualms. I mean, I have no problem with what he says there. It, 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 in fact, it's in many ways uh right in line with kind of how I would articulate the same subject. So, so by saying, if you average it out, it seems Arminian, it's not, I'm not saying that, that that's a universal consensus. It's just, there's so much diversity. So you do have some that do sound a lot more, uh, I would say amenable to kind of a later Augustine and Calvinist perspective and some that are maybe on the other extreme. So, but I would say, um, yeah, I, Go, going back to the methodological issue of just because you find a church father that holds your view doesn't mean your view is legit. But it, what it does show is, especially if this is a, um, expressed, articulated clearly by church fathers that were accepted by the tradition. The reason we have them is probably because they were not you know, excluded. They were not regarded as heretical. It doesn't necessarily prove that your position is true or right or the right interpretation, but it does demonstrate that it is a an allowable position within the the diverse christian tradition and that's Mm -hmm. kind of my i have a pretty even though i I have very firm views on many many things i also have a pretty generous uh orthodoxy with regard to the what i call it just the orthodox protestant evangelical tradition i'm i'm not one of these uh 
what I call rabid Calvinists who's looking for someone to bite all the time. Mm-hmm. I acknowledge there's way other ways of putting these things together. I don't feel they're better, but they are part of the They're still brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. Uh, diversity is good too, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think a Keeps lot us of people, honest. yeah, for sure. And it reminds us of our creaturely limitations that we are not omniscient. Yeah. And uh, there are just certain things that we have to wrestle with because God didn't explicitly give us all the answers. Uh, so, yeah. and that's a good thing. Uh, that's a really a blessing. Um, but back to the shepherd, I yeah. uh, am thinking through, okay, like if this was in a Bible, you know, and you've got those uh, opening pages in a study Bible that walk you through the basics of yeah. The, the, the time of writing stuff. and yep. all that. What, what is, what, what's the purpose of this book? Why, why did this dude write the book in the first place? Yeah. The, there does seem to be a um, scope creep going on as you go through it, but early on, it's pretty obviously sets the tone of, uh, and this is basically the message of the book. Y'all talk about to, to Christians primarily Y'all have gotten uh, lazy and lax and double-minded. You know, you want to be worldly, but also you want to be calling yourself a Christian. And you, you need to repent and straighten up because judgment's coming. Uh, in this world, what he calls the tribulation is coming, or the time of judgment is coming. And if you're not ready, if you're not pulling yourself together... Hmm. Uh, and repentant, and you're still the this kind of loosey goosey approach to the Christian life. Um, you're going to suffer the consequences of that. So there's a distinction being made between the pagans, total heathen, the people who are totally on board and and right walking in holiness, and then this mushy middle that is that he's really addressing, trying to call them to repentance before the end times begin. That's his main rhetorical approach so you're telling me that he was not a post-millennialist oh no no yeah I, you know, and, <laughs> didn't and, didn't he recognize sorry. the tribulation happened in 70 ad which is interesting hardly anybody did i mean they or or if they did acknowledge it they said yeah yeah yeah. when when the capital t tribulation comes it's gonna be kind of like that mm. you know so preterism you know here i go making you know anybody who watched this mad at me but uh you know as a historian okay I can be honest. Preterism is just not a thing. Partial preterism or parts of the Olivet Discourse being fulfilled in the first century and then more to come or this being a type of that, that's pretty common. Mm -hmm. But saying it was all fulfilled in the first century, no. Um, Post-millennialism, you do start seeing militant post-millennialism popping up in the mid to late medieval period among some some sects. Uh, But basically you're your eschatological perspectives tend to be futurist, even among many of the early amillennialists, that there's a future coming antichrist and a future period of tribulation on this earth. And then, you know, premillennial, amillennial are sort of your your positions that are vying for attention in the second, third century. So, yeah, Hermes, he, he doesn't really talk about the millennium much. He does talk about the coming age, the coming age in this earth, in the world. That's contrast with the present age. Um, and he does definitely have a coming tribulation period. He doesn't tell mm. us how long it's going to be, but he does offer that if you're one of the spiritual and all repented, all repented up, uh, you can be spared the tribulation or even escape the tribulation. But he doesn't really get into the mechanism by which that 
that occurs. Mm-hmm. So to say he he held a pre-trib rapture or something like that would be way, way going too far. But he definitely has, he's offering some sort of eschatological bonus, whatever that is, uh, for those who are ready versus those who are double-minded. And he was at least a, a futurist in regards to yeah. uh, many things. Um, yes. It, it sounds a lot like James, really. Uh, w- wash your hands, uh, you, you double-minded, you know, re- yeah. repent for, I mean, James, I think the only time that James explicitly, maybe a couple times, he explicitly references the Lord Jesus was in reference to his coming, that, yeah. that the Lord is coming. And so get ready. It sounds a lot like the book of James. Yeah, and the, the phrase double-minded is appearing in, in Shepherd of Hermes. It's, I think it's James, it's the only time it appears, and in, in, it's not a common word in Greek until after that. So mm. uh, so definitely Shepherd of Hermes is influenced by uh, at least that thought of, that's coming from the book of James. Did the author, did the shepherd think he was writing scripture, like writing holy, authoritative scripture? Oh, that's a great question. Um you know, it's a, in my apostolic father's class, we spend a little time saying, what in the world is this? Uh, <laughs> is this, is this Christian fiction? Is it Christian, you know, performance, uh, art in some sense? Did everybody in the audience know that this isn't really, right. he's not really having a prophecy or is that something he, is it, is he trying to trick people into thinking he had these visions and revelations or, uh, was he did he really have uh revelations and the writing itself is not inspired but the fact of his revelation is you know so you we entertain all of the different possibilities i tend to think it's um i tend to think you know in the early centuries of the church uh the theater was off limits for jews and christians because of the paganism and the idolatry and just frankly the Everything was rated, you know, R or above. Um, and I think what you're seeing in Shepherd of Hermas is the closest thing you could get to Christian theater. That's my theory. Mm. I can't necessarily prove that. But if you're, if you're familiar with Greek satire, um, uh, it sounds, I guess it's Aristophanes in the cloud or the clouds or something like this. And then you read Shepherd of Hermes, it sounds somewhat similar, has certain echoes and similarities. So I do wonder whether everybody at the time knew that he's taking Christian virtues and Christian theology and kind of casting it in this Christian satire uh, performance sort of Hmm. genre. I couldn't prove that. We floated out there as an idea. I did run it by uh, Carolyn Oziek, who is probably one of the foremost top three Shepherd of Hermes scholars in the world. Um, and she latched onto that and thought oh, that was a pretty decent idea, but that's kind of how I, where I land. So if that was the case where it was uh, meant to be a piece of art that communicated something about life, faith, how Christians are to live, then perhaps it was well-received in the same sense that like a Christian movie today would be well-received. Yeah. Um, obviously they weren't making movies then. Uh, but if he actually <laughs> thought he was receiving visions from God and was speaking from those visions and thought the people of God need to hear this, this is from the Lord, 
that almost puts us in a strange spot with trying to figure out why did some Christians embrace it? If they understood that, that he wrote it that way, um, then it would be like they're adding to the canon by accepting yeah. another book of the Bible outside of the apostles going into the second century. That kind of leads yeah. us into some weird places, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, there's a, there are a handful of the apostolic fathers. You, you can cut them on one hand that, that some people in some places accepted as apostolic and prophetic as scripture. It's shepherd of Hermas. Uh, the, the Didache uh, appears in some discussions, um, the Epistle of Barnabas, sometimes First Clement, not as much, but really that that handful, and it just so happens that those are the writings where a a very plausible case can be made that they came from the first century, or at least parts of them came mm-hmm. from the first century. Anything that they knew came after the first century. We they, they didn't consider it as a candidate for canonicity. So. Th- yeah, Shepherd was regarded by some because they thought it was apostolic and prophetic, or at least prophetic, written by a real prophet. And then others rejected it because, well, same reasons we would. I mean, it, it is, seems to be inconsistent with other things that we see. Uh, Tertullian, you know, on the, the western part of North Africa, uh, thought that his Shepherd of Hermes's uh, so-called lax approach to divorce and remarriage was... Mm. Uh, unacceptable because he said look if your spouse breaks your marriage covenant in adultery uh you should accept them back but once give them one chance and what's really going on is it's uh it's an allergy analogy or allegory for the church it's someone who apostatizes and bringing them back into who breaks their baptismal pledge and you bring them back in once um a lot of that that's missed uh by a lot of people but Tertullian calls him the shepherd of adultery because all he's doing is is encouraging people to you know take their chance right wow. how many how many chances do I get okay I'm going to use that up you know you're giving them permission to be unfaithful once um, so you can see those kinds of reasons uh, they they had a dim view of it so it is a good question you know I make a case in an article at one point uh, on the passing of prophets um, off the scene his- historically I know. I don't really care what people think, you know, what you can prove biblically. But as far as historically, uh, they seem that they pass off the scene by about 140, 150. Mm. So it's hmm. plausible from a historical perspective that that they would they would think that you could have prophetic visions and utterances, etc., even into that early second century. So I don't know. It's not my view, but it is a view that people think yep it's difficult when we study church history because we have we all have preconceived notions we all have our own uh beliefs and convictions about you know what what is right and what is good doctrinally and even how we view the canon of scripture how how difficult is it for you as someone whose job it is to live in that early time period so much uh to immerse yourself in early christianity how, how hard is it to let go of some of your preconceived notions to hear authentically truly frankly how they viewed things and try to synthesize that with where we've landed today by and large yeah. as an evangelical church i mean i don't know if i'm articulating that really well no, but just, i get it the, just that tension that exists there how do you deal with that yeah it, it 
I guess some of the side effects have, have been that I, I hold certain things with way more conviction than some Christians. So I'm <laughs> solidly Trinitarian and have a high view of the, of Christology and, and some of these things that have always been from the very beginning, the regular fide, as Irenaeus described it, the, the basic Christian faith. Um, and then I also very clearly distinguish those things from the issues for which there's never been a consensus. There's been mm -hmm. diversity of opinion. So uh, I, and it also allows me, I guess, or, or requires me to hold some of my convictions uh, more graciously, I guess, with the hermeneutic of grace <laughs> and say, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, year, I'm a Calvinist. Years ago, I was teaching a soteriology class and uh, was um, was teaching about election and predestination, giving my perspective. And I had uh, what I'm just going to call kind of a rabid Calvinist sitting in class. And, you know, he shook his head and said out loud, I can't believe anybody could read Romans 9 and not be a Calvinist. You know, I looked at the clock. I looked at the clock. I had about 15 minutes and I said, all right, everybody, turn to Romans 9. And I proceeded to explain how I would read it if I were were an Arminian, you know? And it's not that they, you know, Romans 9 isn't in the Bible or Revelation 20 is not in the Bible of the amillennialist. It's, there's a different way of, of reading these things that goes, it goes way, way back. And you just, uh, you realize that Christians can have differing interpretations and opinions on these things. I don't hold them but I, I can understand them. And it's caused me to uh, have few, uh, far less enemies and get in far fewer fights with people. So that's kind of how it it's functioned for me. Mm. Yeah. You uh, retweeted me once, I think. <laughs> 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 okay. If I remember right, I think the tweet was something like uh, Christian tribalism is Christian cannibalism. And yeah. uh, yep. we, we just see that so much today. Mm -hmm. I, I think the internet has really pushed us that direction. I mean, for someone to say, I don't see how you can have any other reading of Romans nine than the reading that I have shows that you've spent a lot of time, a lot of time in echo chambers. I mean, maybe, oh, you, yeah. haven't been a, sure. maybe you haven't been a Christian very long. Maybe you were saved in a certain context and you're yeah. only viewing certain YouTube channels for your Bible teaching and yada, yada, yada. Um, but boy, if you've been a Christian for really any significant amount of time, you should be interacting with people <laughs> who disagree right. with you and, and lead you into the diversity of secondary doctrines that exist. And yeah. again, I think it's a good thing that, that yeah. that's the case. Oh, I but, do too. Um, yeah. But there are some people who are just, it seems like totally bent on being cannibalistic in the Christian faith, you, it's my way or the highway. If you yeah. take any other view, you're a moron. And uh, that's just not an honest look at what Christianity is or what the church history has been, frankly. But that's right. And, uh, you know, it's it's the what, what they call the Dunning-Kruger effect. You know, you get mm -hmm. exposed to a little bit of information. You suddenly think you're an expert because you read a book <laughs> on it or, or watched a YouTube video on it or whatever. Um, and the problem is if you just continue to reinforce yourself with that very narrow perspective, um, you, you're not going to get smarter. You're just going to get more and more ignorant. You're going to be a, a well-informed, you know, ignorant person who knows one, a whole lot about one little thing. So it's, I, uh, I really, we encourage at, at DTS, especially people to read more broadly. People are, are actually surprised. They come into my ecclesiology class or whatever, and they're, they're reading, you know, covenant reformed 
ecclesiology, they're reading, you know, Baptist ecclesiology, they're reading my ecclesiology. So it's, um, we try to expose them to a number of different perspectives mm-hmm. rather than just one. I think that's a, I think it's only healthy. I'm not asking people to flip and change the view or flop, uh, but to at least be aware that, look, these are other ways of looking at the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously important to land on a conviction, to study it out and to yep. have a conviction. Uh, I think actually ignoring that uh, is, is really uh, disobedient in the Christian life. Yeah. But um but they have to demand that everybody see it your way or, uh, or they're just stupid or something is, is ridiculous. Um, so yeah, that's a, a helpful reminder uh, back to the, the shepherd. I am curious sure. You mentioned the Tertullian issue with divorce and remarriage. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious if there are other hot button issues in the shepherd. Cause it, sure. it's a long book. Um, that's yeah. one of the reasons <clears throat> I've only flipped through it. It's like, I, I cannot sit down and read this thing. That's as long as, <laughs> you know, Ezekiel or something. And I just can't do that. But uh, I'm curious what kind of landmines are in there or controversial wrong statements, the biggest problems perhaps that are Mm -hmm. in the shepherd of Hermas. How can you entertain us that way? (laughs) Yeah. So there have been, that's one, you know, what his view of divorce and remarriage, and seems to be very rigorous in in our perspective. Um, The other one really is, um, you know, the synergy synergistic kind of cooperative approach to sanctification, spiritual growth that, that rubs a lot of people wrong, but some have accused it of actually being, having a low Christology or an angel Christology or a spirit Christology, almost modalistic that he's confusing the persons of the son and the spirit. We uh, in the commentary show that that's just a total misreading of the, of those passages. Um, Mm -hmm. He is, he's definitely not, you know, he definitely has a an orthodox incarnational Christology. So and can, a, can you explain that a little bit more? I'm curious. Yeah, that, well, there's a um, there's a a parable that is told in um, Parable Five where uh, he they tell this parable, the story of the of this um, this king, and he has a son, and there's a servant, and um, and he sets up the scenario, and then and then the in, in the interpretation of the parable. He says the son is the is the Holy Spirit and the servant is the son of God. And then, and then people will. And, and it's crazy that the last couple hundred years of of uh, or 100 years or so of scholarship has latched on this. The, the son is the Holy Spirit. See, he's a modalist. No, 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 no. The, the symbol of the son in the in the parable represents the Holy Spirit. It's not saying the son of God is the Holy Spirit in a modalistic sense. So that one's real easy to to sort through. Um, they've a, a, it confused a, a vision of uh, of angels, you know, who looks like, you know, they look like men in the visions, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden this one figure comes who is the the most glorious man. It's called, and it's clear that this is the Son of God. This is a, a, a you know, the manifestation of Jesus or a symbol of Jesus, and then they because the angel over here is called glorious and the, the glorious man is called glorious. They must be referring to the same person. I mean, it's just such horrible. I mean, exegesis. I'm going to say something and, and going to get people mad, but you don't have to be doing this very long to realize that some of some historians are not always the best exegetes. Mm. They're, they're not, they haven't really trained in uh, grammar, syntax, context, those kinds of things. Sometimes, um, 
in our history program. Some of them are great, uh, but some of them there, you can tell that they just, you know, they need to be taught how to do a right mouse click. Well, and to, as, you know, if we go back to that, that tension of taking our convictions today and going back and studying something mm -hmm. from long ago, especially if you have a preconceived notion about what you're studying, it can be easy to see what you want to see. And if yeah. you have a, a negative view of the shepherd of Hermas, it can be easy to go in and look at that parable and then immediately jump to, he, see, he was wrong theologically, right. uh, gravely, right. he was wrong, you know, on, on this issue. And so that's something we got to always watch yeah. out for too. Yeah. So, so the, uh, the idea too, that this presupposition that, that a high Christology and Trinitarianism came later. So therefore we can't find that in the shepherd of Hermas. It would be historically impossible to find something that is consistent with that later view. Well, that's a total uh, unproved presupposition. And um, the other extreme is, you know, we're not going to find a full-fledged Nicene, homoousia, hypostasis, right. you know, Christology and, uh -huh. and Trinitarianism either. But, uh, you know, and sometimes it's who says it. So, you know, you had certain very influential German scholars in the 19th century that, you know, they pick up these things, they declare this is what it means. And, you know, you've set the the agenda and trajectory of all historical critical studies for another two generations. And so we're kind of emerging from that, uh, which which ultimately was an echo chamber. You know, they were citing mm -hmm. themselves. So, yeah, so we kind of redeem, spend some time redeeming poor Shepherd from charges of, you know, bad Christology or bad Trinitarianism or whatever. It's It's actually on the main things consistent with, uh, orthodoxy at the time as well as later. Okay. Well, there's obviously too the issue for those of us who are cessationists, there's the issue mm -hmm. of he's receiving visions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so here you have a man who was a Christian early on after the time of the apostles sure. who claims to be receiving dreams and visions from God. And then you have other Christians embracing that uh, whether, you know, they're viewing it as some sort of art or as scripture itself, you have other Christians embracing it and apparently not having qualms with this idea. I mean, I'm just thinking if, if the shepherd of Hermas was released today, I mean, you know, that there would be three, four, five cessationist ministries, those who do not sure. believe in continuing visions who would have an instant review of the book on YouTube saying, this is ridiculous. We can't promote something that talks about dreams and visions. So what do you think of it from that perspective, uh, assuming you're cessationist, but you can clarify that if you'd like, I, I am. And that yeah. makes it, that would make it difficult for me to be like, okay, yeah, this is, this is really good. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so I, I consider my, you know, between cessation, hard cessationism and so and hard, continuationism where you know there's a, it's a spectrum and it i, I oh, consider myself kind of a soft cessationist i do believe that god answers prayer and can heal and do some different things yeah. but uh, i don't think that we have apostles and prophets for instance today mm -hmm. um those kinds of things so uh yeah i will say it, it wasn't really a problem because it it did arise at a time late first early second century at which, so apostles pass off the scene by 100. That's a historical fact. I know people want to talk about continuation of a, at the apostolic office still mm -hmm. today, but, uh, you know, history is history. It's very stubborn. It doesn't like to change. It's a fact that apostles passed off the scene. They were a fixed number. Uh, prophets, though, I, I do 
I have an article called the passing of the prophets in the early church um, that I did a few years ago, which tries to narrowly pinpoint when do you see the prophets pass off the scene Hmm. and uh, they kind of continue on by the time you get to about 155 or so Montanism has to call itself the new prophecy because obviously the original prophets are, are gone. So sometime between 125 to 150 is when all of those, you know, maybe second generation of the church prophets and prophetesses pass off the scene. So that's why it really wasn't regarded mm. as a priori as can't possibly be prophetic because there was still uh, the phenomenon of, of uh, actual prophetic utterances in the churches for the early second century. And then they pass off the scene historically. Yeah. Yeah, And Um, that's good to remember. Like it wasn't just the apostles uh, who were having visions uh, or like, like John, for example, writing revelation, but um, yeah, there were prophets apparently several just in Corinth because they had to limit themselves to two or three speaking at a time. So yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the daughters of, um, uh, Philip right. Caesarea, you know, that means that that next generation are coming up with the yeah. and, and receiving this prophetic gift. So they, they you know, it's not like at uh, 101 or uh, the year 100, December 31st at midnight, you know, all of the prophetic <laughs> utterances stop. It's a, a real and Cinderella story. Over, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. So, yeah, I think that that's the best case. What, what's interesting is in mandate 11. There are 12 mandates, remember. Mandate 11 deals with how to discern true and false prophetic utterances in Shepherd of Hermas. And this is coming from early, late first, early second century. And it is kind of interesting. And what, what's interesting, too, is it describes um, prophesying uh, in the same way as Old Testament prophets. It's basically saying, just as the prophets of old, this is how New Testament prophets are. So we have early Christian descriptions of prophesying that are um let's say don't know the old testament new testament prophets are the same quality uh same phenomena that's not a different kind of phenomenon so that's something that too that i know modern day approaches to prophecy tend to say well no it's different new testament prophecy is different than old testament and that's from a historical perspective a very difficult position to maintain now that you've written the book on the shepherd of hermas uh, yeah. how much, how much time will you spend going back and reading the shepherd of Hermas? Um, I teach the elective every two years. So for sure, once every two years. Okay. All right. Well, that's because um, you have to, okay. So I have I, to. outside of having to, I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the real question is, do, and you're asking me, do I need to go back and actually read this thing? Yeah. As long I mean, as is detail, it... Should I go back to read it? Yes. It... Yes. You should read it. Hmm. I think you should read it. Um, I do want to warn you though. And I have to be honest. It's, it's like, uh, you know, I did a 50 mile or bike ride with my son several years ago and you don't get on your bike and ride for 50 miles. You ride for five miles and you ride for 10 and 15 and we increase it, you know? So your first through shepherd of Hermes, I say, look, just read it as sort of a high altitude quick survey hmm. And then next time through, give yourself some time and it'll, it'll start to, you'll warm up to it a little bit. Um, and I think you'll begin to appreciate some of the things that it is, 
trying to get across. But the first time is going to be a little painful. I'm just going to be <laughs> frank, you know. <laughs> Just yeah. put marks in the call in the columns and say, okay, Spiegel did say this is okay. I just feel bad. I feel, you know, it <laughs> doesn't feel right. Doesn't sound right. And then grab, and I, uh-huh. seriously, the commentary itself, um, I'm going to plug it as a, a nice guide. So when you come across something that sounds really, really bizarre, uh, you can open up the commentary and say, oh, oh, it is bizarre yeah. <laughs> or whatever, you know, yeah. we'll be honest about that. So you, you were saying personally, you kind of landed on the side of uh, this was some sort of Christian art or early Christian art, like a satire. Yeah. I, it's an uncomfortable position to land in. I don't know that. I don't know that some people though, later the, the, the counter to that is people later quoted it as if these were real, real, uh, visions, but again, other people rejected it as not real vision. So, Hmm. You know, when I first started studying this, maybe the first few times through it, I toyed with the idea that maybe this guy has lost his mind. You know, that this is the ramblings of some lunatic. Um, part of that is I get emails and, and self-published books like that all the time sent to me. And you can tell this this person is, you know, uh, not completely balanced. And But when you go through it, you know, especially in the original language, this, this co- coherent cohesive consistent this is not the writings of some uh you know guy who doesn't can't put together a a logical rational sentence so Mm -hmm. it's um yeah it's uh i cannot though rule out the possibility that uh at the core and there are some shepherd or hermit scholars who believe this that at the core there may be a real um, revelatory visionary experiences. Hmm. Uh, I can't rule that out, meaning as a, as a historian or even a theologian, because right. it's so early. I don't think that that's what it is, but I can't. Again, it's what can I prove and what can I? What am I comfortable with? I'm not always the same thing. Yeah. Um, well, if it's if it is a work of creativity, if it is a work of work of art, uh, so to speak. What does that inform us about how we uh, today in the Christian life can be contributing mm-hmm. to the Christian cause by creating art? I mean, I'm even thinking back to the AI theist. Yeah, how, yeah. I mean, you you wrote something that was fiction along with other things mm-hmm. you've written that are fiction. But this one I've read, I mean, very extremely focused on the core issues centered on Christianity there and but it's a work of fiction. And so, I yeah. mean, does, does that communicate something to us today about how we can be contributing to advancing the cause? Yeah, I think so. And, and I let maybe, maybe my landing soft landing on Shepherd of Hermes is a work of kind of early Christian satire uh, to be performed an oral performance of satire and satire doesn't mean it's just for entertainment. In fact, quite the contrary satire was very biting and mm. you're sitting in the audience and they're like, what? Oh, wait, Wait, he's talking about me. You know, <laughs> it's a, it's kind of a one-two punch. They kind of soften you up with the with the entertainment, and then smack you across the face. Um, so I think I have to be careful because part of me is attracted to that because it's what I like to do in my fiction as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my fiction is is infused with theology or philosophy or or um, 
some moral virtue or or something like this ethics so and and i want to see this as sort of the forerunner of that the genre of christian fiction um well, the fact that I don't accept it as canonical means it does fall into that category, whether the guy was trying to pull one over on us or not. Uh, but I love it. I mean, I was influenced by Narnia and C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and, and these early Christian, uh, you know, tw- early 20th century Christian writers, um, even Graham Greene, a mm-hmm. little known British author who, who was really good at highlighting you know, the human condition from a kind of Christian worldview. Uh, and I think that there's a great opportunity there to, in a, um, the one-two punch, you know, you're softening them up with, uh, hmm. with a fun narrative, but at the same time, really presenting them with um, some hard to swallow pills, to be honest. It's, uh, it's the art that's been perfected by the Babylon Bee in our age, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We are we are yes. very familiar with satire these days. Exactly. Yep. So, well, good. Well, what's uh, what's next for you? What what are you working on now? I mean, these are two very yeah. different books that you've written. We just talked about what's uh, what's next on the horizon. So I will be, you know, finishing up. I'm about ninety to ninety five percent complete with the manuscript for the sequel to Topia, which is my full length sci fi novel I did several years back. Uh, I should be wrapping that up by. Christmas or first of the year somewhere on there and um, that'll be coming out. And then uh, I just turned in a manuscript for a very an overly large manuscript for a theological work of scholarly academic work on eschatology, um, which is a, it's, the current title is um, remembering the future, a, a contemporary Irenaean eschatology. So it's kind of taking oh, Irenaeus wow. of Lyon as sort of the framework and then demonstrating biblically, theologically, historically, that that picture of eschatology, the basic framework, with some updates and modifications, makes the most sense. Uh, so it's a it's an academic work. I'm hoping that I'll be able to spin out of that a popular level work for the sake of the church. But right now, it, it, really, the need out there is a, an academic treatment of this uh, premillennial futurist eschatology. And uh, after that, um, I got several things popping up books and chap uh book chapters and articles but uh that's it for this time being irenaeus was premillennial huh oh yeah oh yeah premillennial futurist he believed in a seven-year tribulation which was the 70th week of daniel um which in fact is the earliest view articulated in the second century um yeah he he would surprise jaw it would be jaw-dropping surprise to some people how uh, unexpectedly, uh, um, he definitely wasn't a dispensationalist in the in the nineteenth century dispensational sense. But some of the things that the very things that dispensationalists are picked on for, Irenaeus held. held in fact, it, it is the early earliest articulable position uh, in the history of the church. So it's yeah. So it's giving yeah. that kind of perspective of another chance. If I remember right, he actually made a couple of statements that hinted at a uh, an evacuation of the church before Daniel's seventieth week. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. You know, there are the um, 
they're the maximalists and the minimalists with regard to the rapture and the history of the church. The maximalists want to find every mention of uh, sparing from wrath or anything like that as a reference to the rapture. And that's just not a responsible historiography, Mm -hmm. um, cherry picking. The other one is the minimalist is like, nobody ever heard of anything remotely close to the rapture until Darby came along. Um, And the, to be honest, I, I I just have to be honest with the facts of history. Even if it's going to make people roll their eyes, Irenaeus held something like what I, I to use modern categories. I make the case that and I spent a whole chapter dealing with it in the Latin text that he held to something like a partial hmm. pre-tribulation rapture. And um, he has the church going through. So he has the church going through the tribulation. He also has when in the end the church is suddenly caught up from this it will be tribulation so he has one passage of church being rescued like elijah uh, like enoch and uh, elijah were he says but also the church going through it and so the ones who want to find no rapture focus on the church suffering tribulation <laughs> in Irenaeus. the ones who want to find the rapture you know and uh, the reality is uh as unsettling as it may be he agrees with both and neither he holds <laughs> he holds to he makes a distinction which i don't make between those who are spiritual and prepared and ready and repented up the, what he calls the pneumatic or the spiritual ones and then the fleshly ones mm-hmm. and the spiritual ones he promises rescue the assumption of the spiritual he says and the and the wishy-washy ones he says are going to have to go through purification. And I make the case, whether people buy it or not, uh, that he's probably influenced in that position from the shepherd of Hermas, to be honest. Wow. We have come full so make circle. That connection. We, we have, we have, so we'll see, you know, he, he agrees with both and neither. That reminds me of, uh, something a guy in our church says, uh, I, I feel strongly both ways. So yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. So, so with, you know, my perspective, I don't share that with Irenaeus. I do hold, I'm a, I'm a pre-tribulationist, even though I know that makes me a, you know, total outcast and uh, I'm with marginal, you. but that's all right. So I'm okay. I, I, you know, I like to tell people I've never been cool and I'm not going to start now. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but Irenaeus, you know, he has a different soteriology and ecclesiology than I do. His is more that you have different categories of Christians and some are spiritual and some are not in this you know, uh, similar to Shepherd of Hermes or more of a holiness kind of tradition. And I basically say, look, if I take his his eschatology and pair it with my Calvinistic soteriology, it lands me on a pre-tribulation rapture, you know. Mm. So we'll see. We'll see if they buy it. But you're, you're starting with an academic level with that one, though, huh? Yeah, yeah, okay. definitely, yeah. All right. Well, good stuff. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining me today and chasing some historical and theological and apologetics rabbits all over the place. We covered a lot of a lot of ground, didn't we? <laughs> we did. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. I do too. Thanks so much.